So we're starting um, section two of uh, chapter one. So the, the title is Physical Signification of Technical Form Taking. And then the uh, initial subsection of that section is Physical Conditions of Technical Form Taking. So we're, we're still talking about the, the brick example, um, what it means for the hylomorphic schema. So I'll start reading. Nevertheless, if the psychosocial conditioning of thought can explain the vicissitudes of the hylomorphic schema, the former can hardly explain the permanence of the latter and its universality in reflection. This permanence throughout successive aspects and this universality that infinitely spans various domains seem to require a less easily modifiable foundation than social life. This discovery of this, this unconditional foundation requires the physical analysis of the conditions of possibility of form-taking. Form-taking itself requires matter, form, and energy, and singularity. But for a raw matter and a pure form to be able to divide two technical half chains that will be rejoined by the grasping of singular information, it is necessary that raw matter already contain before any elaboration something that can forge a system leading to the terminal point of the half chain whose origin is pure form. This condition must be built before any sort of human elaboration. Matter must be structured in a certain way for it to already have the properties that are the condition of form taking. In a certain sense, we could say that matter contains the coherence of form before form taking, yet this coherence is already a configuration with the function of form. Technical form taking be called the hexity of raw matter. A tree trunk on the timber yard consists of abstract raw matter insofar as it is considered a volume of wood to be used. Only the essence to which it belongs approximates the concrete by indicating that a certain manner, a cer sorry, a certain behavior of matter will be encountered at the moment of form taking. A pine tree trunk is not a fir tree trunk. But this aforementioned tree, this trunk, has a hexiety in its totality in each of its parts, right up to a definite level of smallness. There is a hexiety in its totality in the sense in which the tree trunk is straight or curved, almost cylindrical or regularly conical, sectioned off more or less roundly or in a strictly flattened manner. This hexiety of the ensemble is truly how this trunk is distinguished from all others. It is not merely how the tree can be recognized perceptively, but what is technically a principle of choice when the tree is utilized in its totality. For example, in order to make a beam, this trunk is more suitable than another depending on the situation due to its particular features, which are already features of form, specifically a form worthy of the carpenter's technique. Even though this form is presented by other, a tree in the forest can be recognized by looking for the, tr the trunk best situated to a certain precise usage. The carpenter merely needs to go into the forest. Um, so this is one of those giant multi-page paragraphs. So I'll stop there um, and we can discuss that first page. Um, so here um, he, he's continuing with um, the development of the last section. Um, and so he, he had posed the problem earlier of uh, so he had set out the problem of what or the generality of the hylomorphic schema, or why is it that the hylomorphic schema seems to be, why is it that the hylomorphic schema um, maintains its uh, hold on, on thought um, over a variety of different eras uh, from classical antiquity up to the present. And, and so there's that social embedding or that uh, social production of the hylomorphic schema in the sense that um, it corresponds to the, the slave owner's uh, perspective on the person who orders uh, a certain number of bricks to be made out of a, a massive clay, um, but doesn't have any um, 
knowledge or interest in the actual production process itself. But then if we want to account for that generality, then we have to understand how um, this schema can can operate in other types of societies rather than just in slave-owning society. It is not tied to that um, particular social arrangement that allows for um, the, the generality of, uh, of uh, the, the schema or the fact that it, it still um, maintains some sort of validity um, in contemporary society. Um, and, and so that's what he's going to be trying to set out in this section um, is that um, the, the physical basis, uh, so not tied to the, the social basis um, or the, uh, the hylomorphic schema. So the first um, sort of uh, example that he's drawing from for the, uh, um, the physical basis of the hylomorphic schema is uh, wood, the, the, the form of wood. So if wood, we can treat it as, as a, a raw matter to which a form is going to be applied through various woodworking operations. Um, but uh, a, a tree trunk as a, um, is not uh, pure matter. It's not something that has just an abstract form. It's, uh, the trunk has uh, a general shape, uh, whether it's cylindrical or conical or whatever it is. Uh, as we'll see in the next bit, it also has um, internal structure, which, um, which makes certain woodworking operations more uh, uh, easier or more difficult to uh, perform. We'll see in the next bit, but um, in general, it, this has to do with the um, capacity of a certain form to take on a certain form, which is, is um, not always uh, equal, depending on what type of matter and what type of form are, are uh, in question. Quick question. Um, in terms of terminology, as, as we've run into this a number of times, I just wanted to get some opinions or clarification on uh, the use of the terms um, uh, half chains, like two half chains. Uh, I've been kind of rereading that as some sort of uh, interactive processes, or I'm just wondering about ways of thinking about uh, what he may be referring to when he says two half chains. Right, so this... Um... Uh, goes back to the the previous section um, and the analysis of the hylomorphic uh, schema and the interaction of form and matter. Um, so rather than just saying that there's an abstract form and a, and a raw matter that are um, sort of uh, added to each other in, in some sense, there, there has to be some operations that um, will take uh, the abstract form and, and sort of uh, incarnate it into a... Um, into a, um, a real uh, physical object, a, a mold in a particular case. Um, and then on the other hand, the, the raw matter is, is not a, just a, a, an intellectual um, matter. It's, it's something that has to be prepared in a particular manner, um, whether it's clay or, or, or wood or whatever it is. Um, it has to be um, prepared so that it can take on the form uh, th from the, the other side. So you have one half chain that starts from raw matter and then proceeds to the, the prep through the preparation towards the form taking operation and you have the other half chain that starts from the uh, abstract form and then proceeds through the physical uh, embodiment of that form in a mold or, or other tools or something like that 
um, towards that form taking operation. And so the the form take the form taking operation is the point where those two half chains link up. I was just going to say this section reminds me of the quote from pages 24, 25, where he says that it could be said that the form of the mold only operates on the form of the clay and not the clay matter. That this whole interaction of like the, the limiting form of the artisan and the tools that they use and then the implicit form that allows form taking to even take place in the first place. It's, a, it's an interesting turn and I, I think we'll see more of that in the coming pages. Yeah, so we're going to see more about, uh, so in, in the case of the brick, the the matter is um, uh, relatively um, uh, plastic in the sense that it can take on um, just about any form that you want to give it. Um, you can produce a mold of pretty much any form and, and fill it with clay and then make a, a, a brick or um, a block of of uh, whatever shape you want but then when you look at other other types of matter so in this case wood there is much more um, internal structure to it which um, will require um, that the form taking operation be more that there are only certain types of form taking operation um, are are possible or some are easier or harder than others yeah i guess um i'll try turning off the live stream and and see if um, um so hopefully everyone should be able to speak in the the voice channel if they so desire uh, and um yeah and you can also put commentaries in the the chat um but yeah if, if did you have a, a comment you wanted to make uh so uh yeah i just wanted to mention i think one really cool thing about i was just thinking about the half chain as we were kind of going into that and that you know the link so the fact that there's two half chains and then there's the the link that then just becomes part of the the chain there's no difference really between it um once you link up the two halves and then the the two half chains and the link become then like possibly a half chain in another operation. So I think that's an interesting how the half chain then continues, becomes a chain and then becomes a half chain later. Yeah, so it doesn't seem to be anything that would um, prevent some sort of iteration of this uh, chain uh, process um, that uh, that you could have forms imposed on something that previously was acting as a, a form um, uh, to another matter. Um, so you can you can continue uh, imposing more forms or, or bringing out more forms on onto uh, sort of higher and higher levels. Um, I, I think that's something that's um, still open uh, in in Simondon's account. Shall we read the next section and I'll offer to read it if so? Okay, secondly, the existence of implicit forms becomes manifest the moment when the craftsman works on the raw matter. A second level of hexaity, man hexaity manifests therein. <clears throat> a trunk quartered or stripped by a circular saw leaves behind two regular beams, but these are less solid than those from the same trunk broken into wedges. However, the four blocks of wood are seemingly equal, despite the quartering pr procedure utilized. But the difference consists in how the mechanical saw cuts the wood abstractly along a geometrical plane without respecting the slack undulations of the fiber or their expansively spiral winding. The saw cuts the fibers, whereas the wedge separates them merely into two halves. The crack proceeds by respecting the continuity of the fibers, curving around a knot, following the heart of the tree, and guided by the implicit form that the force of the wedges reveals. Similarly, a lathe tree fragment, a lathe tree fragment requires a revolving geometrical form from this operation, but the lathing cuts a certain amount of the fibers, such that the figure's geometrical envelopment acquired through revolution cannot coincide with the sectioning of the fibers. The true implicit forms are not geometrical, but topological. 
the technical labor must respect these topological forms that constitute a parceled hexaity, a possible information without lacking without anything lacking. The extreme fragility of unrolled wood, which prevents their usage in a single non-laminated layer, results from the fact that this procedure, which combines linear sawing and lathing, veritably yields a sheet of wood but without respecting the orientation of the fibers above a sufficient length. In this case, the explicit form produced by the technical operation does not respect the implicit form. Knowing how to use a tool is to come to man through the tool, the implicit form of the matter being worked upon at the precise spot that the tool attacks. The plane is not merely what cuts out a more or less thick chip. It is also what makes it possible to feel if the chip is cut out finely without splinters, or even if it begins to be uneven, which signifies that the orientation of the lines of the wood is opposed by the movement of the hand. What makes certain simple tools simpler, like the draw knife, which does excellent work, is that due to their non-automaticity and the non-geometrical character of their movement, which is entirely supported by the hand and not by an external system of reference, like the lathe, these tools allow for us to grasp continuous and precise signals that invite us to follow the implicit forms of workable matter. The mechanical saw and the lathe violate the wood and misrecognize it. This feature of the technical operation, what could be called the conflict of levels of forms, reduces the object, uh, reduces the possible number of raw materials that can be used to produce an object. All wood can be worked with a draw knife. Some types of wood are already difficult to polish, but very few types of wood are use suitable for the lathe, a machine which chips away along an orientation that does not account for the wood's implicit form, the particular hexaity of each part. Some types of wood that would be excellent for cutting tools, which can be oriented and modified during the labor process, become unusable for the lathe, which irregularly attacks them and gives them a rough, spongy surface by detaching bundles of fibers. All right, so here we have um, um, an analysis of two different ways of imposing form onto wood. Um, so you can either um, uh, operate um, at the level of the structure of the wood itself, of its fibers and so on, by splitting. Um, uh, or uh, conversely, you can operate um, at the level of uh, the, the, the general form or, or the, the, the shape of the whole piece of wood um, by uh, with lathing or, or similar types of um, operations which don't um, apply to the, the structures in the, um, um, uh, within the wood. Um, so the, the, the one method um, stays at the level of the structure of the wood and the other one is um, um, is at the level of the is a higher um, order of magnitude um, and and doesn't respect the um, uh, uh, structures of the wood itself. So both the draw knife and the lathe are at a higher order of magnitude, right? Um, yes, I think so. I'm just trying to find that draw knife example where I'm not a, a carpenter or anything, so my uh, knowledge of this stuff is basically drawn from uh, Simon Dong, but uh, yeah, I, I think so. Um, so I, I've done a bit of woodworking. So a, a draw knife, it's um, basically like a, a strip of um, like a knife that's um, kind of long, like uh, maybe a foot you know, wide. It can be shorter or longer, but then there's two handles. And so one would place... Um, like a piece of wood in a, um, you know, vice or some kind of clamp. And then you would use the draw knife to um, go along with the grain to kind of um, 
you know, remove wood. It's kind of like a chisel, but this like long um, strip that has handles. And, and it is like a very different interaction with wood than um, using a mechanical saw um, or, you know, an electric lathe um, because of the, yeah, I think like this is right on what he's saying. It's like such a different experience, the like how one is responding to the wood and, and like, and able to shift um, kind of continuously as um, one is making these, like these um, drawing the knife and removing wood. Right. Yeah. Thanks for that. Um, uh, it's good to have someone Yeah. Sorry. Go ahead. Yeah. So um, given the example there of the, um, the visual example, the picture of the planner, of the um, draw knife, it seems like it, you know, uh, slightly constrained to more planner type of cutting away, um, but maybe uh, Sol can address the the idea of but uh, whether there is a constraint towards more planner type movements of cuts, or or whether there is more flexibility as far as. Uh, yeah, so there's there's different, you know, styles of draw knives. There's some that are designed for making, you know, um, flatter cuts, and, and there's some that are more curved. And, and even if one is flat, it's pretty easy just to turn an object to, to make it round. It's not going to have... Um, so, I mean, I think lathes were used historically as well, but were, like, foot-operated or had a little bit more, um, like, human kind of, like, feedback in their operation but um that's something to think about too but i think yeah the draw knife you could easily make something round with it um, um with a certain type of draw knife uh sorry i was just going to point to the uh the, the two footnotes that you posted in the chat um Alyosha, which i think are important here um because uh yeah so as uh Lave mason um pointed to um so the the draw knife uh, or, or even a, a foot-operated lathe, or, or any other tool that you have um, that is uh, operated by by human uh, muscular power, you have um, at the same time as, as the the human gives uh, the the motion to the tool and and the the power that operates the tool, they're also receiving feedback from the uh, um, application of the tool to whatever matter is being worked upon. So in this case, wood. Um, and, and so that feedback is um, is what allows for um, that more uh, guided um, operation. Uh, so whereas the the lathe, the electric lathe, it uh, it just operates at a certain speed and uh, um, it sort of ignores the the information contained in the wood, the singularities of the structure of the wood. Whereas the human operator with a draw knife or or other similar tools. Um, can feel the the way that the tool is um, is cutting into the wood and follow the grain and, and the structure of the wood. Um, so so there's this um, uh, uh, information contained in in the wood that guides the form taking process. And uh, as he points out in, in footnote eleven, um, these singularities are are are. Um, um, the results of the growth of the tree, so they, they sort of uh, uh, represent or correspond to um, the action of wind or animals or or 
whatever other um, forces operated on the tree in its growth um, that made certain uh, that made the grain uh, uh, form in a certain way, um, and and it's those singularities that are um, uh, picked up on by by the feedback uh, in uh, the human operated tool. Yeah, and, and in that footnote twelve, I think it's interesting because he's he's basically he's almost flipping it and he's saying the forms are almost their activities modulated by the information. So it's not just, I guess, like how we would think of it, of, um, you know, looking at it and noticing these inconsistencies and you're choosing to move around them or something like that. It's that they actually affect the whole shape and kind of create limit points and breaks where things are possible. And I guess he'll go into more examples of filters and other things where, there's no like sort of perfect filter that you can start with that, that you're always already making a pre-selection based on, I, I was trying to say in chat, it seems like he's done a few. So he's, there's, he, he says there's three degrees in this like really long set of paragraphs. First is some kind of the, the totality of the hexity of the thing as it's going to be used and like selected at all. On page 37, he says a technically a principle of choice when the tree is utilized in its totality. Then you have the second level manifest when the craftsman begins to work on the raw matter, page 38. And then he'll get into the third degree, I think, later on. But the point is that these degrees, like, they, they don't come about just because of some kind of rational choice making, but are implicit at different levels in the, uh, you know, in the matter itself, I guess. Yeah, so the, the, the matter has, um, has this structure uh, that uh, only appears... Um, uh, in connection with uh, uh, um, its use or or it's being worked on, um, so the tree uh, trunk as a whole um, has a certain uh, structure which uh, uh, corresponds to the the choice of of whether you you need a a cylindrical or a conical um, piece of wood for whatever um, use you're putting it to, uh, and then the uh, the structure, the fine level structure, the grain of the wood. Um, appears uh, in connection with the woodworking um, uh, operation uh, and the splitting and uh, and using the draw knife and so on. Um, and then, yeah, we'll get to that next layer below, which only um, uh, makes itself known um, at, uh, uh, in another form of technical um, operation. So the 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 level at which the form taking takes place is is relative to the um, type of technical operation that is being carried out. Okay, so I think we can go on to the next page or so. Uh, I think it uh, continues with the same giant paragraph. I can go. Uh, the only types of wood suitable for the lathe are fine-grained or almost homogeneously grained with a system of fibers mirrored by a system of transversal or oblique bonds between bundles. However, these types of wood which have a non-oriented structure are not necessarily the ones that offer the greatest resistance and the greatest elasticity to bending forces. Wood treated by the lathe loses the benefits of its implicit information. It presents no advantage over a homogeneous matter, like a malleable mold matter. On the contrary, its implicit form runs the risk of conflicting with the explicit form one wants to give it, thereby frustrating the agent of the technical operation. Finally, at the third degree, there is an elementary hexaity of workable matter that intervenes absolutely in the elaboration by imposing implicit forms, which are limits that cannot be surpassed. 
This is not matter as an inert reality, but matter that harbors implicit forms imposing preliminary limits to the technical operation. In wood, this elementary limit is the cell, or sometimes the differentiated mass of cells, if the differentiation is fairly extensive. Thus, a vesicle, which is the result of a cellular differentiation, is a formal limit that cannot be surpassed. A wooden object cannot be constructed if the wood's details would have an order of magnitude inferior to that of the cells or the masses of differentiated cells when they exist. For example, if we wanted to construct a filter made of a thin laminate of wood pierced with holes, we could not make holes smaller than the grooves already found in the wood naturally formed. The only forms that can be imposed by the technical operation are those of an order of magnitude superior to the elementary implicit forms of the matter utilized. The discontinuity of matter intervenes as form, and what happens at the level of the element happens at the level of the hexaity of the ensembles. The carpenter looks in the forest for a tree with the desired form because he cannot significantly straighten or curve a tree, and he must guide himself towards spontaneous forms. Similarly, the chemist or bacteriologist who would like a filter of wood or earth will be unable to pierce a slab of wood or clay. He will choose a fragment of wood or slab of clay whose natural pores have the dimensions he desires. The elementary hexaity intervenes in this choice. No two porous slabs of wood are exactly alike because each pore exists in itself. One cannot be certain of the caliber of a filter except after trying it out because the pores are the result of a form taking elaborated before the technical operation. The technical operation, which is an operation of modeling, molding, and sawing, functionally adapts the support of these elementary implicit forms, but does not create the elementary implicit forms. One must cut wood perpendicularly to the fiber in order to have porous wood, whereas one must cut it longitudinally parallel to the fibers in order to have elastic and resistant wood. These exact implicit forms, i.e. the fibers, can be utilized either as pores by transversal section or as resistant elastic structures by longitudinal section. So I don't know if it's just me hung up on this, but is it, these three degrees that he's describing, like I'm having trouble distinguishing between them. So they all kind of they all kind of make sense to me. But this third degree sounds quite similar to the second one he described. So I'm trying to understand what's different with um, where is it? In the second one, he says it it, this, it manifests when the craftsman begins to work on the raw matter. That makes sense to me. But then isn't isn't what they're doing inherently limited by? Is he just saying this? Yeah, I guess, I guess that's what I'm asking. Can anyone help explain what he means by these different kinds of hexaity? Um, yeah, I think, uh, well, I'm not 100% sure about this, but I think the uh, um, three levels or three orders that he's talking about here are are not, um, there isn't like a, a sort of pre-existing structure of these three orders. It's just, these are, they're some, somewhat arbitrary um, or they're relative to the case of the wood um, and other um, other types of matter would have uh, maybe two or one or 10 or whatever um, degrees of hexaity that they could be um, uh, identified. Um, so in this case, um, there there's these three degrees you can identify um, because you have um, the, the, the shape of the entire piece of wood, the, the trunk or whatever it is, and then you have uh, the level of, of the grain of the wood, which can be um, uh, identified by the through woodworking operation and the feedback that it provides, and then you have the elementary level or, or the lowest level below which you can't uh, go. 
um, with the uh, the level of the cell or the the differentiated bundle of cells. Um, and um, uh, yeah, so I think I think the these three levels are um, are relative to the the type of material chosen or or the the type of matter chosen. Um, and also to the types of operations that operate on that matter. Um, so if there were um, um, if there were other uh, levels of operation for woodworking, then you might have um, more levels of hyxiety that would correspond to them. Yeah, maybe it's something to think about. I, I guess I, I kind of implicitly, I suppose, everything with Simonin is always going to be processual. So it's not that I was concerned that they might be preformed. It's more... I guess, and we're kind of saying in the chat, it might help me a little bit, this thing of, is, isn't it just a kind of perspectival shift between the second and the third? Because the craftsman manifesting this like new kind of uh, added on hexady, I think he gets onto it in the end of like everything that the artisan does with this specific thing is beginning to kind of add and renew the hexady. So that makes sense. But then if you're talking about the elementary, elementary hexady, that, you know, that, that, that one is only happening because of the limits set. But if it's just a perspective thing of, like we said with the information, where it's it's almost as though the information is the thing that is now setting the limits on the artisan rather than the other way around, maybe that's why it's necessary for him to even distinguish between them. But uh, yeah, I'll keep trying to think about it. Just one quick uh, comment. Uh, I, I was going to say my only uh, reservation about the term perspectival um, is that um, it's not um, the, these uh, degrees of hexity were are, are not relative to um, uh, a perceiver or something along those lines. Uh, they're relative to um, a, an operation, a technical operation. Um, so it's uh, um, each each type of technical operation of of imposing a form or or taking on a form uh, of, of this matter um, will have its um, level of hexity uh, relative to it. So I'm trying to uh, piece together a few concepts, and I'm reminded a little bit of uh, some of the reading from the other book on the mode of technical objects, the mode of the existence of technical objects. And I'm thinking that here, um, Simondin is, is kind of touching into maybe the aesthetic experience of the uh, craftsman and the the processes whereby the uh, technical object <clears throat> uh, is involved in in uh, in this interaction of information, such that it also informs um, <clears throat> the aesthetic experience, um, both of the becoming subject and the interplay with with the matter <clears throat> in the case of uh, wood here and the malleability um, yeah the, the the flexibility or yeah the hexaity I guess of this particular matter wood in question point I mean he goes on to talk about other matter. <clears throat> But it seems like there's something, some kind of speculation on the aesthetic experience that involves these uh, different degrees of of being informed and 
he seems to have a commitment to the idea that the the matters hexaity um, kind of speaks to the aesthetic that might involve you know the, the, I I don't know if it's identity but something having to do with the formation of the the subject, the subjective aspects of working with production of the technical object. Yeah, um, I'm not sure about uh, the term aesthetic um, here, because um, the the aesthetic mode of existence or aesthetic reality is a, a one of the particular forms that he um, particular modes of being in the world that he. Um, uh, sets out in that third part of um, on the mode of existence of technical objects. Uh, so it has a, a, a sort of a, a specific place in the, the philosophical system, um, which I don't think um, uh, directly applies here, but uh, it's definitely something, uh, there's that experiential aspect that you're, I think, pointing to. Um, so that... Um, the relationship between the the artisan and the matter that they work upon is not um, um, it, it's different than the relationship between the slave owner and, and the the matter that they order uh, for uh, to, to be worked on. Um, um, so there's uh, this uh, experiential aspect which um, uh, is different in this case rather than. Um, uh, in the case of the slave owner. Oh, and 61 also uh, pointed out, uh, I had for forgotten about this, but this is probably relevant, uh, but pointed out in the chat that um, the Greek term hule, the, uh, which is the, the sort of technical philosophical term for matter, um, the, the like everyday usage of the term means wood. Um, uh, so the, the term that came to be the, the technical philosophical term for matter um, what originally meant wood, uh, and so so wood is in some sense like the the paradigm case of, of matter. Um, so that's uh, uh, a nice little um, uh, example, or uh, it's it's relevant to uh, the development here in this section. That was helpful. I'm not sure about the <clears throat> the terminology or the discussion around the uh, uh, the production where where he does talk about. Um, slave and then the I guess the analogous or the transformation that happens <clears throat> later I'm not clear on um, that part of the discourse I'm I wasn't sure it were you is that something that's in reference to does he bring that up in uh, in this reading and uh, in the ILFI or is that something in the in the other book because I do remember reading something about that um, but my other question is is more kind of uh, on the surface, marginal. Which book was written first? Were they written at the same time? Um, was IL, did ILFI come before the technical, the mode of existence of technical objects? Uh, I'm not 100% sure about the writing uh, history uh, because um, so in the the French university system at the time uh, in in like the late 50s and early 60s when he when he's writing this. Um, you had to present two theses, uh, a major thesis and a minor thesis. 
And uh, so this book, the individuation book, was the major thesis, and the um, technical objects book was the minor thesis. Um, but in terms of publication, um, uh, On the Mode of Existence of Technical Objects was published first in 1958, I believe. Uh, and then this one came out in, in 1960, I think. Uh, or, sorry, the first part of this uh, of the individuation book came out in uh, 1960, a couple years later. Um, so uh, the writing, I'm not 100% sure. I think they were probably being written uh, at the same time. But uh, in terms of publication, um, the Technical Objects book was published first. Uh, we're at the, the end of that one giant paragraph. So um, with uh, we ended it uh, as resistant elastic structures by longitudinal section. Um, I can read that next uh, paragraph on page 40. Sure, that sounds good. It could be said that the technical examples are still plagued by a certain zoomorphic relativism when the implicit forms are solely distinguished with respect to the use that can be made of them. Yet it should be noted that scientific instrumentation appeals to implicit forms in a completely similar way. The discovery that crystals can diffract X-rays and also gamma rays has objectively founded the existence of the implicit forms of raw matter, wherein sensory intuition could grasp nothing but a, a homogeneous continuum. Molecular lattices act like a network that has been traced by hand on a slab of metal. But this natural network has an even greater elementary lattice that is much smaller than the finest networks that can be fabricated, even with micro tools. Thus, at the extremity of the scale of magnitudes, the physicist acts like the carpenter who goes out to look for a suitable tree in the forest. The physicist chooses to analyze the x-rays of a certain wavelength of the crystal that forms a network with an elementary lattice of the same order of magnitude as this wavelength. And the crystal will be cut according to a certain axis so that one can best use this natural network it forms or it will be assaulted by the bundle of rays according to the best direction. Science and techniques are no longer distinguished the level of utilization of implicit forms. These forms are objective and can be studied by science, just as they can be used by techniques. Furthermore, the only means that science has to study them inductively is to implicate them in an operation that reveals them. Given an unknown crystal, we can discover its elementary lattice by sending out bundles of X-rays or gamma rays with a known wavelength onto it in order to be able to observe the figures of diffraction. The technical operation and the scientific operation are joined together in the operative model they instigate. Right, so here we see that the, the implicit forms that he's been discussing um, are not solely relative to um, usage uh, that they can be put to in technical operations, but that they can also, that um, the, these implicit forms are also at work in uh, scientific instruments. Um, um, and, and so they, they don't have a, a, a usage in the same sense that they did in a technical operation, but um, it's the same um, uh, selection of matter that has uh, uh, the appropriate implicit forms um, that is at work. Um, and so in the case of the, the crystals, um, 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 I mean, I think he explains it fairly clearly here, but um, just uh, to uh, set it out, they, it, with crystals, they, um, crystals have a, a geometrical structure depending on the, the um, 
chemical nature of, of the substance that is crystallized. Um, uh, so every every substance has a particular um, geometrical structure which uh, repeats um, in a, in a, a network or lattice structure, um, and you can analyze the the structure by um, bombarding it with X-rays, which are um, uh, uh, diffracted um, in a certain pattern depending on the uh, structure of the crystal. Um, so you can take uh, an unknown crystal. Uh, you don't know what um, what it's made out of, what what the chemical composition is, and then you can bombard it with X-rays of a known frequency uh, and study the uh, diffraction patterns, and and that will tell you what the the lattice structure of the crystal is, and then from that you can tell what the uh, chemical composition of that uh, of the material is. Um, so it's a uh, um, uh, and then you can also work the other way around. Um, you could take a, a known crystal, um, a, a crystal whose uh, whose chemical composition and uh, and lattice structure is known, and then you could um, you could test um, uh, an unknown uh, uh, beam of X-rays, um, and uh, and based on the based on the diffraction pattern, you could determine what the frequency of the X-rays is. Um, so you can work in either direction, um, but in, in either case, you're relying on these implicit forms within the uh, the crystal um, to uh, uh, diffract in a certain pattern, um, and and you're drawing information from uh, from those implicit forms. Okay, so I think we can go on to the next um, section or, or subsection, I suppose. Um, um, so here we're going to talk about um, uh, what relation these implicit forms have to uh, what we think of as qualities of matter um, or qualities of, of entities. Um, so I can read the next uh, couple paragraphs. The hylomorphic schema is insufficient to the extent that it does not account for implicit forms since it distinguishes between the pure form, which is called form, and the implicit form, which, which is conflated with other features of matter under the name quality. In fact, quite a large number of qualities attributed to matter are in fact implicit forms, and this confusion does not merely imply an imprecise classification. It also conceals an error. Veritable qualities do not possess hyxiety, whereas implicit forms contain a hyxiety to the highest extent. Porosity is merely a global quality that a piece of earth or wood could lose or gain without a relation of inherence to the matter that constitutes it. Porosity is the aspect under which the functionality of all of these elementary implicit forms, which include the pores of wood, such as they in fact exist, present themselves to the, to the order of magnitude of human manipulation. Pores become dilated or condensed, obstructed or cleared. Implicit form is real and exists objectively. Quality often results from the choice that the technical elaboration makes concerning implicit forms. The same wood will be permeable or impermeable according to the manner in which it has been cut, whether perpendicular or parallel to the fibers. When it is used to describe or characterize a type of matter, quality just ends up as an approximate, somewhat statistical knowledge. The essential porosity of a tree is the greater or lesser chance one has to encounter a certain number of non-obstruction vesicles per square centimeter. Quite a few qualities, particularly those relative to superficial states like smoothness, granulation, polish, coarseness, and softness, designate statistically predictable implicit forms. This qualification is merely a global evaluation linked to the magnitude of a certain implicit form generally presented by a certain matter. 
Jake Hauck put a lot of effort into reducing qualities to elementary structures because he did not dissociate matter and form and because he considered matter as capable of essentially conveying forms to all levels of magnitudes, not only to, to the level of extreme smallness of the corpuscles of subtle matter, but also to the, the level of the primordial vortices from which our galaxies emerged. The vortices of subtle matter, which constitute light or transmit magnetic forces, are on the small scale what cosmic vortices are on the large scale. The form is not attached to a determinate order of magnitude, like the technical elaboration would lead us to believe. Insofar as the latter reduces to qualities of matter all the forms that constitute this matter as an already structured being before any elaboration. So when we talk about the qualities of matter, um, in this case, things like uh, permeability or impermeability to water, um, this uh, this is a, a sort of a statistical um, um, uh, uh, statement, I guess you could say. Um, so you're, you're attributing to the matter um, uh, a certain likelihood of uh, finding um, vesicles uh, in, in a certain direction or something like that. Um, and, and this is also relative to the way that the matter is treated. Um, as you mentioned, that it depends on the way that the wood is cut, whether it would be porous, uh, uh, permeable or impermeable. Um, and uh, um, he then compares this to um, uh, Descartes' system of, uh, of philosophy or, or physics. Um, so in, in this system, in, in his system, there was, um, uh, um, he, he distinguishes between primary qualities and secondary qualities. Um, so primary qualities are, are geometrical ones, uh, and those are the only uh, real ones. And secondary qualities are um, being, are, are uh, relative to an observer. So they, they have to do with the effect of, um, of the primary qualities on the observer. And he, um, he explicitly tries to um, explain the the generation of these secondary qualities through different um, operations of uh, vortices of uh, of of um, uh, um, like sort of uh, primary matter. Um, so that there's no um, in in Descartes' system, there's no um, there's no um, void. There's no atoms or void. It's a continu continuum of matter. Um, but there are uh, uh, sort of elementary um, uh, um, small bits of matter, I guess you could say, that um, that circulate in these vortices. Um, and the phenomena of uh, uh, magnetism or light or gravity and so on, these are all explained in terms of uh, different forms of vortices. Um, and uh, and the, the world system as a whole, or, or the, the solar system, is, uh, is itself um, the result of a, a, a vortex that um, um, coagulates in a certain form and, and so on. Um, so um, in, in Descartes' system, there's um, a reduction of qualities, uh, so heat and, and light and uh, color and so on, to the operation of these um, elementary structures. Uh, so yeah, that's that's sort of the background of that a second paragraph there. Can I ask if this applies, that this is my question sort of in, in chat, or my supposition that this could almost apply, like that last sentence of the first paragraph where he's saying quality results from the choice 
uh, technical elaboration makes concerning implicit forms, the same wood will be permeable or impermeable according to the manner in which it has been cut. It strikes me like, th does Simone Den, um talk elsewhere or, or later in this about, um, you know, the, I guess prior to the technical operation? Because this almost seems like a great way of rebutting to, like, rebutting the arguments about qualia just in general, that like th this also would happen uh, even in nature, e even though a technical operation isn't intervening in the same intentional way that you might say with a human, just in like a whole ecosystem, whether you're talking about different. You know, plants and the wind and erosion and all that stuff or if you include like animal behavior whatever it might be that the quality the qualia that normally are kind of abstractly attributed to a thing of like oh it's it's smell it's color these things like would it make sense within Simone's framework to say well this is also all this is all information and information in the sense that it is it is only exists sort of as the result even temporary result of all these other processes that are happening, that are acting upon each other, upon the, the form taking, the the limits within these things, the different levels of hexity, I suppose, to produce, you know, this particular tree that has this these qualia which appear to just be sort of inhere in it rather than, you know, being the results of something. Does does that make sense? Yeah, I think that makes sense. Um, the one the one element that I would uh, want to emphasize as well, though, is that um, the qualities that he's talking about in this section, um, uh, as he puts it, they're they're statistical or approximate. So they they um, because they're you're almost zooming out from the the detailed structure, um, so that um, you only get a, a quality like roughness or smoothness. Um, insofar as you're operating at a level of uh, an, an order of magnitude that's much greater than the fine structure of the surface. Um, so that, uh, uh, so smoothness or roughness um, is something like the uh, probability of um, coming across a certain number of bumps in a, in a surface over, uh, 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 you know, per square centimeter or something like that. Um, uh, so it's a it's an approximation or it's a statistical um, property. Uh, even though at the level of uh, our experience, we might experience smoothness as a as a sort of um, as a simple quality. Um, it it's the it corresponds to this um, statistical um, um, uh, perception of a of a surface. So I'm going to uh, push back a little bit on this with uh, some questions. First off, um, I'm wondering if, uh, you know, there's something going on where he's he's setting up uh, the problematic here and later um, whether he's going to uh, provide an argument against this notion that he's setting up here or whether he's going to continue because I don't know whether he's going to continue with this uh, more quantitative perspective. Um, and, you know, my critique is, of course, that uh, the situatedness that Simondon finds himself in time and, and his milieu uh, is um, causing him to reinforce his philosophical perspective with uh, 
these mathematical notions, um, particularly the gaze of statistics. And, uh, and here we have uh, a compelling argument to, to minimize qualia. Um, and this opens up kind of a set of, of problems I can't really go into all of them, but um, one of them would be the fact that uh, there is this sort of scale problem and the equivocation of um, various human experiences with technique. He makes these jumps. Um, the com you know the comparative examples going from to me they they seem problematic. I mean, going from the coarse uh, distinctions, uh, looking at polish and various other qualities, to seeing how uh, you know Descartes may have uh, you know, you know follow the same line of reasoning. So, I mean, I'm vaguely discussing some of the problems. I can't really articulate the details so much, but 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 uh, there have been a couple of these types of leaps so far, um, and these are sort of uh, kind of philosophical moves of discourse um, or ways of writing, you know. But the the logic is is uh, inherent in that process. So that's one critique that I'm trying to articulate here. And then, you know, the other one is, of course, that uh, um, the utility that we see in trying to quantify um, and account for the fact that certain quality of experience can be quantified. And so uh, he's pointing out that maybe he's trying to draw a distinction between the subjectivity and the objectivity of things, but the gaze of statistics, I think, um, is uh, something that could be a problem. Um, I'm, I'm not really sure that I understand exactly the um, the issue. Um, I think I think um, when he's talking about the uh, the qualities here, he's not. Um, He's not um, saying that the the qualities are not real or something like that. Um, it's a uh, it's a um, uh, I guess there's the the um, correlation between these qualities in the uh, at a certain order of magnitude and then uh, statistical properties of uh, the object in the uh, in uh, at another order of magnitude, at a, a much smaller order of magnitude, um, like in the example of a smooth or a rough surface. Um, so the what appears at one level of magnitude as a, a simple quality is um, at another level of magnitude is a, a statistical property of a surface uh, or something like that. Um, so it's not it's not that smoothness and roughness are not real or something along those lines. Um, it's that they're relative to a certain order of magnitude. Um, and, and I think that would be the case for um, any uh, anything that we would want to describe as a quality. Um, but uh, uh, 
uh, yeah, so any any quality is uh, um, relative to an order of magnitude. I think is is the uh, general takeaway here. I guess I, I need to better understand <clears throat> the use or what you mean by magnitude here, um, because it seems like it's moving across or transcending more than one category, where it's not just quantity, but there's magnitude as, as it relates to quality. I think that the statistical account of um, some perceptive qualities, though, uh, because of its approximate nature, you know, it, it could also be argued that, that it's um, optimizing or it's limiting or it uh, uh, will discern for certain patterns and that that, that could actually dull, uh, if taken for an equivocation, can dull the, the idea of perception, uh, even intuition. I think I agree with Angus. We should do the next paragraph. But I, my take on that, Ayan, if I understand what you're saying, is just what we were discussing in chat, that I don't think he's positing some kind of autonomous, like there are some objective reality to the statistics in and of themselves or anything. I think he's saying there's a way that like what we experience in, in as qualia is not actually this non-localizable feature of matter that can't be explained or something but that it, it's it uh you know we, we we do the bergson stuff together and the way i was thinking about it in chat is like for, for bergson matter presents itself to perception insofar as it can be acted upon you know so there's a way in which perceiving it through the halts and halting it in a way which might not actually be true to its full duration or whatever is actually, it's not like an elusive or illusionary way of looking at it. It's necessary for us to act upon it. So you're not adding on to, you, you, the, the problem, the paralogism you don't want to fall into is always end up accidentally ending up talking about matter or things in a way where you're, you're once again applying things on top of them and they're either real or irreal, like you're applying a secondary order of reality on them rather than something that kind of like, develops naturally i suppose or is imminent within them so and i think the challenge with both bergson and simondon is like in this case it's that's where thinking transductively comes from right to like because i think the error would be stopping at the statistical level and thinking yep that's that's all it is this is what it either in a, in a hyper like scientific realist sense or in an abstract idealist sense like with the berkeley that bergson criticizes of well this is why it's all idea and there is no such thing as matter whatever it might be so it's there there is it, there is that reality, but it's only because it it operates uh, there's like a mesh, like I guess like he's saying, like that our experience of the smoothness, like uh, non manifest said, is itself just like that's that's the the smoothness of this mesh that is actually a result of these other singularities and whatever. So um yeah, I don't I don't think we it's that it's not that you stop at the statistical layer and you just say, Yeah, it's all numbers really. It's I don't think that's what he's saying. It's that there's a certain kind of our understanding, our knowledge of information in that way is really just an expectation of consistency of effects. And if you keep going further, then you can say, okay, well, that's where these effects come from. That's how I'm processing it. 
but <laughs> sorry, I, I do think we should continue. Yeah, I think we can uh, continue to the next uh, subsection um, just to keep things moving along a little bit. Um, so if someone else would like to read uh, the next bit, uh, sorry, the, the next uh, uh, paragraph here. It can thus be asserted that the technical operation reveals and utilizes already existing material forms and moreover constitutes them from other forms on a scale larger than implicit natural forms work upon. The technical operation integrates implicit forms rather than imposing a totally new and foreign form on a matter that would remain passive vis-a-vis -vis this form. Technical form taking is not an absolute genesis of hexaity. The hexaity of the technical object is preceded and supported by several layers of natural hexaity that it systematizes, reveals, and clarifies, and that co-modulate the operation of form taking. This is why it can be supposed that the first types of matter elaborated by humans were not absolutely raw matter, but matter already structured on the scale of human tools and human hands. Plant and animal products already structured and specialized by their vital functions like skin, bone, bark, the supple wood of the branch, and flexible vines were certainly used rather than absolutely raw matter. These seemingly first matters are the vestiges of a living hexaity, and this is why they are already present themselves to the technical operation as elaborated, and whereby all that remains for the operation is to accommodate them. The Roman water skin is a goat skin sewn at the extremities of the legs and neck, but still conserves the aspect of the animal's body. This also applies for the tortoise shell of the lyre, or the skull of the bull still bearing horns, which is used to support the bar to which the strings of the primitive musical instrument are fastened. The tree could be modeled while it was still alive, while it would grow by developing according to a direction given to it. This can be seen with the bed of Ulysses, which is made from an olive tree whose branches Ulysses bends to the ground while the tree was still young. Having become large, the tree dies, and Ulysses, without uprooting it, makes it into the frame for his bed, constructing the room around the place where the tree had grown. Here, the technical operation accommodates the living form, and partially diverts the latter for its own benefit, by leaving the care of completing the positive work of growth to the spontaneity of life. Furthermore, the distinction between form and matter certainly does not result from pastoral or agricultural techniques, but instead from a certain, limited artis certain limited artisanal operations like those of ceramics and the fabrication of bricks from clay. Metallurgy does not fully allow us to think by means of the hylomorphic schema, since the raw material, which is rarely in the pure natural state, must pass through a series of intermediary states before receiving the form properly speaking. After it has received a definite contour, it is still submitted to a series of transformations that add qualities to it, tempering, for example. In this case, the form taking is not visibly carried out in a single instant, but in several successive operations. We cannot strictly distinguish form taking from qualitative transformation. The forging and tempering of a steel ingot, ingot are anterior, anterior for the former and posterior for the latter to what could be called form taking properly speaking. Forging and tempering are nevertheless constitutions of objects. Only the dominance of techniques applied to types of matter made plastic through preparation can guarantee the hylomorphic schema a semblance of explanatory universality, since the, this plasticity suspends the action Sorry, this plasticity suspends the action of the historical singularities carried by the matter, but this involves a borderline case that conceals the singular action of information in the genesis of the individual. So again, he's relativizing here the application of the hylomorphic schema. Um, so it's um, um, it's only uh, these types of technical operations like um, pottery um, and uh, uh, creating bricks and so on that gives um, gives rise to this hylomorphic schema because 
the preparation of the matter in, in this case uh, serves precisely to um, eliminate these singularities that, that uh, existed in the matter beforehand. Whereas in other technical operations, you have to uh, rely on those singularities um, and incorporate them into the technical object. Um, so like the case of the, I mean, the, the, the tree bed thing is the, the probably the best example of this. So I, I'm not sure if this was ever like a, a really practice technique or if it's just something from Homer, but um, um, the, the idea that you could um, uh, model a tree to to grow into a certain form uh, uh, and then use that form as the frame of a bed. Um, I think it's, uh, in principle, it's something that would be possible, but probably not worthwhile in real life, I, I would guess. So so kind of like um, lots of things I, I wanted to say, but I almost forgot. But the thing is that at the end of the day, like uh, it's kind of the metal, uh, Simono is trying to like explain the 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 uh, form meta and then operation and then everything. So, so at the end of the like the uh ha, plur, plurality So in the in terms of operation, um by bringing like crystal as an example, uh, he 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 explained like a there could be more than one operation, and then likewise, um in terms of a meta, uh just like a uh, which is like a, uh, which was just read. Um, that part also explains like um, in terms of matter, there could be like a more, uh, more than uh, I mean multiple multiple barriers which could uh, influences like uh, the diversity of matter. So so by doing that, I still as Tullian hexa I don't know holomorphism can explain. Can, hello, can explain. Um, this plurality and then diversity, the uh, multiplicity, multiplicity, multiplicity of the hexity. So the um, even though even though like um, it seems apparently it's kind of really complex. I mean, complicated like the the chapters we have read so far. But the if we uh, want to simplify um, what Simone wants to say is like a, a multiplicity or, or plurality uh, or, or, or the diversity uh, comes from like kind of like a multiple interweaving inter interweaving like of the all kind of different form different matter different uh, operations all together but my, my question regarding this all things is like a subject. Is there anybody who remember like a which is, is there anybody who remember the part proprietor not artisan uh, get hack city something like that? I mean differentiate or identify hack city. So in, in that sense, like I I was wondering like a uh, um, who who recognizes who identifies hack city the subject who who which one is subject. Like in this kind of all operations, in this kind of like a, the um, the combination of form and matter, which one is subject of the hexity? Yeah, I think that's a good question. Um, I think in in the examples that he's giving here, um, 
the the subject that uh, is is able to recognize the Hexiety is uh, something like an artisan, um, because he's always talking about the um, the technical operation as revealing the um, the uh, implicit forms of the matter. Um, so in the case we had the woodworking example where where he talks about how um, in in woodworking you um, you receive the feedback from the wood uh, um, that uh, provides the information or or that modulates the action based on the information contained in the singularities of the wood. Um, and then again, in, in the metalworking example, it would be something like the artisan uh, or the the metal worker who um, who operates on the metal um, and uh, um, puts it into the uh, the molds uh, and uh, and tempers it and so on. Um, that person is the one who would have the um, um, that would have the the experience that corresponds to the the hexiety in in each case. Um, so so I think it's always going to be the person who works on the object who is going to um, who's going to have the requisite experience to um, grasp these different levels of hexiety. I was just going to say that's that's part of his criticism of the hylomorphic schema is is that it because it, it's um, outside of these. A uh, handful of uh, limit cases like the um, ceramics and and brick making. Um, outside of those cases, it uh, it doesn't um, it doesn't correspond to this um, experience of uh, the technical operation. Um, it doesn't um, it doesn't give you that uh, um, it doesn't give you the the uh, experience that allows you to grasp those hexiades, uh in other technical operations. Thank you. Thank you for a good explanation. But still, like, uh, I can't totally understand, like, the part, because, like, uh, I, I, I wish I could find the exact part, but the proprietor, according to this book, uh, according to that part, like, for example, autism, uh, would not be like a person, I mean, the uh, subject or agent of the whole upper, maybe like the agent operation, but not the uh, the, uh, the tree, I mean, the proprietor of the tree or, or, or crystal. If we move, if we move to like uh, the, the further part, like individuation, something like that, then you can think this, this one uh, further. But the thing is that here, the, uh, which one is like the uh, the whole the subject of all accessory singularity? So I I I think like for example, if we think this one um, put in the in individual individual human being, like then the, in that case we can think more clearly. I guess like for example, like human each human being, if we think that is a kind of like a proprietor of the uh, whole operation, not the whole operation. Like a tree or crystal or or brick, um, the proprietor of the, the the whole thing. I I think that's kind of an issue still. So I can I can I can I can get it uh, still. Like I can, um, get myself like a uh, totally like uh, understood. And then second thing is that, um, sorry, I I should stop here. I I I will think about that more and then I'll ask again. Thank you. Uh, yeah, sure. Um, you can take your time to uh, um, formulate your question or, or comments. Um, 
in connection with that first one, um, I think maybe the passage you're thinking of, or maybe maybe I'm wrong, but I think the passage you're thinking of is um, where he talks about um, how the uh, brick making example, um, uh, the the use of the hylomorphic schema in that example um, corresponds to the the slave owner's um, uh, social role. Um, so the the slave owner. Um, buys a, a bunch of clay or, or, or uh, I don't know, gets it from his own property or something um, and, uh, and then orders his slaves to produce a certain number of bricks uh, out of it. Um, but he doesn't actually um, perform the operation of preparing the clay and putting it in the mold and, and uh, pressing it and so on. Um, and so for him, for the, the slave owner, um, his, his, uh, position or his relationship to the technical operation is just an external one where he he has a, an idea of what the form should be and uh, it should be imposed on on this matter um, and that's that he doesn't have any um, uh, experience of that um, operation of form taking um, so uh, that contrasts with the other examples that he's describing here uh, in this chapter uh, or this section I should say um, where uh, the the artisan uh, does have that experience um, of of the form taking, um, so that they they uh, their grasp of the technical operation is um, at the level of the um, um, is at the level of the singularities. Uh, so the singularities are what guide the technical operation, um, rather than being um, eliminated, like in the case of the. Uh, of the hylomorphic schema. Um, so I, yeah, I'm not sure if that's exactly the, the passage you were thinking of, but um, I think that's uh, um, the distinction between um, this external relationship to the technical operation and the, um, the experiential relationship uh, that the artisan has. I think that's uh, sort of the key of, uh, in, in understanding what's going on in this passage. Yeah, I, I think we can go on just so we don't um, gets sort of bogged down too much um but we can we can come back to these same uh uh concepts as we continue because he's, he's going to keep talking about um the hylomorphic schema and so on um so um let's see um if someone else could read um so hylomorphic ambivalence under these conditions we can pose the question concerning what the attribution of the principle of individuation to matter to matter rather than to form, depends on. In the hylomorphic schema, individuation through matter corresponds to this characteristic of an obstacle or a limit, which is matter in its technical operation. What makes one object different from another is the set of particular limits, varying from one case to another. They guarantee that, the, that this object possesses its hexity. The experience of the recommencement of the construction of objects coming out of the technical operation is what gives the impression of attributing to matter the differences that guarantee that one object is individually distinct from another. Matter is what is conserved in an object. What makes it such that the object is itself is the fact that the state of its matter at any moment summarizes all the events that this object has undergone. Form, which is merely a fabricating intention, a voluntary arrangement, can neither age nor become. It is always the same, from one fabrication to another. It is at least the same qua intention 
for the consciousness of the one who thinks and gives the order of fabrication. It is the same abstractly for the one who controls the fabrication of a thousand bricks. He wants them all to be identical, of the same dimension, and according to the same geometrical figure. Whence results the fact that, when the one who thinks is not the one who works, there is in reality nothing in his thought except a single form for all the objects of the same collection. The form is generic, not logically or physically, but socially. A single order is given for all the bricks of the same type. This order consequently cannot differentiate the bricks effectively molded, under fab molded after fabrication into distinct individuals. The same does not apply when one thinks the operation from the point of view of the one who carries it out. A specific brick is different from another specific brick, not just according to the matter required to make it. If the matter has been suitably prepared, it can be homogeneous enough not to spontaneously introduce notable differences between successive moldings, but also and above all, according to the unique nature of the unfolding of the molding operation. The worker's gestures are never exactly the same. The schema is perhaps a single schema from the start of the labor until the end, but each molding is directed by a set of particular um, psychical, perceptive, and somatic events. The veritable form, the one that directs the arrangement of the mold, the paste, and the regime of successive gestures change from one copy to the other, like so many possible variations of the same theme. Fatigue, as well as the overall state of perception and of representation, intervene in this particular operation, which is equivalent to a singular existence of a particular form for each act of fabrication, thereby translating into the reality of the object, the singularity, the principle of individuation would then be in the information. So here he's, he's uh, talking about that that difference um, of perspective that that I was just um, describing um, the difference between uh, the the internal perspective and the external one. So the external perspective is the, the the perspective of the person who gives the order for a thousand bricks or or whatever it is, um, and for them they they have one uh, single form. Uh, in mind, uh, in, in their uh, intellectual representation of, of what they are, are ordering, um, it has the same form. And um, what would individuate one brick from another uh, is just the matter that makes it up. Um, but then from uh, the perspective of the, the person who actually is making those bricks, the operation of, uh, of form taking is going to be slightly different each time. Um, and especially over the course of a day or, or several hours or whatever it is, the fatigue is going to intervene so that you um, are maybe a little less precise and a little less forceful um, in, in pushing the clay into the mold and so on. Um, so each brick is going to be slightly different from each other brick um, because the, the actual gesture of form taking is going to be slightly different each time. The, the the formed brick that results from the form taking operation um, it will contain the singularities um, not only of the matter but also of the the form taking uh, gesture uh, the gesture that imposes the form onto the matter yeah the it's going to be the the form taking operation that individuates one from another uh, rather than just the matter yeah I think that line that uh, the generality is uh, is uh, not logical, but social. I think that's a, a really good line. Uh, sorry, I, I, uh, I cut you off there. Uh, go ahead. No, it's okay. It's okay. Here, like uh, the form taking, in terms of form taking or 
different kind of meta or different kind of operation. Like, for example, like a brick or crystal, even though like uh, apparently it's like a, a, just one kind of a brick, one kind of a uh, crystal, but uh, which is not actually. So uh, what makes all kind of different things, uh, I mean, take a different form or different uh, different different forms. So uh, pre-individuality, like which will come later, so or potential. So for example, like each individual or each brick or each wood, which each tree or each crystal uh, would have a different potential, different pre-individuality. They could like take a different event, different like uh, operation, something. Could it be right, right understanding? Could it be right interpretation? Um, yeah, I think that's I think that's um, along the right lines. I think the um, I think what ultimately accounts for the uh, individuality uh, of uh, of uh, a brick is the pro or individuality of any uh, individual. Uh, what what accounts for it is the process of individuation. Um, and so it's it's that process uh, in in each case that um, that produces uh, an individual, um, and so the the uh, the form taking operation or or the individuation operation um, um, in each case uh, is singular. It it has uh, the different singularities in terms of um, like in the case of the brick, you have the the properties of the of the clay that are, are going to be different each time and the gesture of uh, imposing the form on uh, onto the clay through the mold is going to be different each time um, so the individuation of the brick is the result of the uh, um, operation of individuation and uh, uh, I think and again this is going to be different in each uh, form of individuation or each type of individuation because we have um, as we'll get to later on, we'll have vital individuation and psychic and collective individuation. Each each type of individuation um, brings about the individuation of uh, individuals in a different way. Um, like as he's already um, mentioned, um, sort of in passing, the in vital individuation, there's a, a continuous individuation through time, uh, as opposed to. Uh, the technical individuation that we've been discussing so far uh, is a, uh, an act of form taking that um, takes place at a certain time, and then uh, the the formed individual can only degrade from there. Um, so there's a, a difference in the, uh, the the different types of individuation are um, uh, going to produce different types of individual as well. Then what's the information here? Sure. So uh, there's a, a note um, 15, and it says the mold is a device dispositive for producing an information that is always the same for each molding. So the information is like the the relation of um, like the mold or like the you know copy machine itself, and it's like that relation between information um, is this kind of you know thing that exists between them as a singularity, but then the individual copy isn't actually a copy, it's an impression, something that's always, you know, different, that takes different forms based on the particularities, particularities of its, you know, hexicities. Yeah, I think that's right. Um, I think the, uh, the information is um, the particularity of the form taking operation or of the individuation operation more generally. 
So there's uh, in each process of individuation, there's a, a particularity um, to the, that process that brings about the uh, individuality of the resulting individual. But uh, yeah, we'll see. Yeah, sure. I wanted to jump in because you're typing out a question just as you're as you're giving this great answer. So is so is that also hexaity? Like is hexaity the end of a process where so, so singularities get organized through a form taking process, and then at the end of that process, you wind up with something that can be said to have hexaity in compared to the other things that are being produced, say from the mold or from the form. Is that right? Yeah, I think that that sounds right to me. Um, the so hexaity is. Um, the the results of a, a process of individuation um, and the singularity is what um, uh, is the sort of starting point that that um, around which the process of individuation forms uh, in its particular way um, uh, and and so information in general is is the the property of uh, of having these singularities um, uh, which um, which can be sort of uh, inherited by the result of the process, so that so you can have a, a singularity like the uh, the action of the wind on a tree um, will cause it to grow in a certain direction, um, and uh, um, the resulting tree uh, will have uh, its its branches, and the the grain of the wood will be formed in a certain direction, um, um, and and so the information is inherited through the process of individuation, through the lifespan of the tree, um, it's inherited by the wood that results after the tree is cut down. Um, so yeah, we have these three sort of correlated terms of uh, singularity, information, and hexiety. Wouldn't the one issue be that if we adjust, because I agree, I think this all makes sense, but then if we say, well, hexiety is the result of this, that, that you can kind of once again end up speaking about it in terms of almost individuals, whereas... It seems like it seems like this is why all the different kinds of language uses complements itself, because I think Ali or someone had mentioned that, you know, the, the idea of potentials and pre-individual states, like what is the, the hexady that's developed isn't, I, I guess, unless we, we go back to the brick example where he's like, there is a point in the unmolding when all the energy has been expended and heat is lost. And now it is this thing, like if it's like the crystal or if it's anything else, the, the, even the wood, like presumably the the hexaity isn't like finished right that the hexaity is like a particular system state that make that is it's thisness right because if it was finished then it could just be you could just kind of end up talking about all these different components as sort of formed individuals acting upon each other but that line that we keep i keep going back to the hexaity of the technical object is preceded and supported by several layers of natural hexaity that it systematizes reveals clarifies that co-modulate the operation of form taking that Again, I, I don't know if I'm wrong here, but it seems like th there has to be some kind of potentials that are not fully exhausted at any layer of hexaity in order for it to continue, be able to keep individuating, I guess, if that makes sense. As far as I understand the Simong Dong's idea, it's like the, uh, you know, the continuous genesis, sorry. So, so, so the continuous, continuous genesis of hexaity, that, that, that's a key point of Simong Dong's idea, I think. And also, um, we, we overlapping, coexisting things all together. So uh, information doesn't uh, end, and then it also like instigate like another processual process, procedural again. And then it's kind of like a never-ending circular or spiral. I'm not sure which one is the right one, but never-ending, never-ending 
process is like made like uh, through um, this all processes. And then my my question is, my understanding is like a hexane is like a, almost like a singularity. Is there any differentiating differentiation between hexane and the singularity? Um, so I think, uh, yeah, I think Alyosha, you're right to, to emphasize again that that the um, uh, the results of a process of individuation is always um, a, a provisional result, or it, it's never uh, it never exhausts the the potentials um, that are contained in the the system as a whole. Um, and so, when I say that hexiety uh, is relative, is uh, the results of a uh, of a process of individuation that's always going to be a, a, a relative result. Um, um, and I think. Um, Ali, to answer your question, um, I think the that the difference, or I think hexiety and singularity, I think they're um, um, they have to do with um, they have to do with the relationship to a process of individuation. So the same thing would be either a singularity or a hexiety, depending on which role it's playing in a process of individuation. So if it's um, if it's acting as the information that structures the process of individuation, then that's a singularity. Whereas um, if it's the result, if you're considering it as the result of a, a process of individuation, then you're, uh, you, you treat it as a hexiety. Um, so the, the singularity, uh, the same, the same um, features of the, of the uh, entity in question can either be counted as a singularity um, if they are structuring a, a, a process of individuation, or you can count them as a, a hexiety if you're treating them as the result of a process of individuation. But um, the same the same feature can play both roles um, in different processes of individuation. Uh, that's that's as far as I understand it. Th I hadn't thought of it in that way, but can I ask, Non? Would it make sense though to think like? Because you can have several singularities that wouldn't, couldn't they together kind of define the hexiety of a, of a particular layer? Like whatever degree you're talking about in those three or a hundred degrees that he gave as examples, or could be potential examples. Like, because because earlier when he describes, and I don't know if we're going to get differences between parasitic and real singularities and all this stuff, but some of the examples of singularities that he's brought up so far were like the knots in the wood, the uh, in the in the brick. We talked about like the pebble pebbles and the air pockets and these kinds of things around which things form and we know that the crystal seed is is kind of the prototypical example of of a singularity that is needed in order for the structuration to happen whereas because because i actually like what you're saying because in a way it's it is perspectival is the wrong word but it's like sort of depending on at what point you're stitching in in the procedure you can call it this thing or the other thing but then it almost struck me and i, I don't know if i'm wrong here that hexiety would be like you know all of the, if you're looking at this this piece of wood it's like all of these singularities taken together at this layer of the technical operation define its hexiety as smooth or as elastic or as this thing so i mean maybe they kind of bleed into each other but i kind of thought of it as like singularity doesn't just mean one thing because there have to be it's they're always plural but that hexiety was more of like the state I don't know a system state, but I I might be off there. I just thought like uh, who who made the terms? For example, like hexity was uh, like a uh, generated by I mean coined by like Don Scottus and then Deleuze like the world 
in that uh so I, I just like simply thought like that's kind of a preference of the uh thinker yeah that definitely is a um don scotus's term um that that simon don is, is uh taking up here um and i think he makes that explicit reference uh in, right at the beginning of the book if i remember correctly um which is kind of rare for him he often just doesn't cite his uh his sources which is kind of infuriating sometimes but uh um so yeah the 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 sort of basic meaning of, of hexity outside of simon don's works uh, uh, but in in the more general philosophical usage um is um uh, the the thisness of something the so what is it that makes it um uh what it is uh that that makes it this particular entity that it is um and uh um for simon don that um thisness um has to do with the the process of individuation from which it results um so that um um it uh it's always yeah so it's always relative to a process of individuation um and i think that's uh something uh, sort of a key idea to to keep in mind um um throughout the the rest of the of the book um but yeah i think uh, there were some comments in the chat about we should finish this paragraph before we before we end because we're almost at time um so yes let's do that um i i can read the last bit of this paragraph uh where are we um, I think we ended up the singularity, the principle of individuation would then be in the information. One could say that in a civilization that divides humans into two groups, those who give orders and those who carry them out, the principle of individuation. The principle of individuation, in line with the technological example, is necessarily attributed either to the form or the matter, but never to both together. The one who gives orders to be carried out does not, uh, but does not accomplish them and only controls the results is one who has a tendency to find the principle of individuation in the matter the source of quantity and plurality, because this person does not experience the rebirth of a new and particular form in each fabricating operation. Thus, Plato considers that when the weaver has broken a shuttle, he fabricates a new shuttle not by fixing the eyes of the body on the pieces of the broken shuttle, but by contemplating the in the, with the mind's eye the form of the ideal shuttle which he already finds within himself. Archetypes are unique for each type of beings. There is a single ideal shuttle for all sensible shuttles, past, present, and future. On the contrary, the one who carries out the labor does not see in the matter a sufficient principle of individuation, because for him matter is prepared matter, whether it is raw matter for the one who gives orders without, sorry, whereas it is raw matter for the one who gives orders without working, since he does not prepare it himself. However, the prepared matter is precisely what is by definition homogeneous, since it must be capable of taking form. Therefore, the necessity of renewing the effort of labor in each new unit is what introduces a difference between successively prepared objects for the man who works. In the temporal series of the day's efforts, each unit is inscribed as its own instant. The brick is the fruit of this effort, of this trembling or resolute, hasty or weary action. The brick carries with it the imprint of a moment of the man's existence. It solidifies this activity exerted upon homogeneous passive matter waiting to be worked. It emerges from this singularity. Here it almost seems to me like we're seeing singularity because we've been thinking about the micro, like molecular way of talking about it. but but he's also describing like the entire context of the artisan carrying out his work. I mean, I, I know there's, there's subtleties to it, but he's saying that he's, I think he's describing that as a singularity as well, which seems to correspond with what you were saying, not about like the wind and the tree. So singularity is almost like 
if we think about singularity corresponding almost more to the idea of information in that it, it informs and conditions the structuration or, or individuation of something, that might uh, introduce a small distinction, if, if at all, to like bet between that and the word hexaity. Earlier on, doesn't, doesn't he say that the um, singularity is, or he calls the mold um, the singularity in the in the brick making operation, right? Is this distinction he's making here the one between the two different forms of hylomorphism that he talks about in the introduction, the matter oriented one and the form oriented? Right. Yeah, he does. He does point to this um, issue within hylomorphism. So yeah, in the introduction, he 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 talks about the. Um, the atomistic or substantialist theory and the hylomorphic theory. And then he says within the hylomorphic theory, you have these two um, opposing positions as to which side um, of the of the schema is the one that um, that uh, accounts for individuation. Is it the matter that individuate, individuates the form or is it the form that individuates the matter? Um, and uh, um, yeah, so here we see the social roots of that distinction within the hylomorphic schema. Um, I would say that uh, it's probably not a good idea to um, just sort of push through, um, just because I want to leave time to um, to uh, for discussion. Um, uh, it is a little bit. Um, I, I would have liked to have finished this uh, this subsection today, but. Um, um, I think we, it's better to pick up uh, next time from here so that we have time to discuss these sections, uh, these couple paragraphs. Um, so yeah, I would say we should probably leave it here. Um, yeah, so thank you everyone for uh, your comments and uh, questions and so on. Um, uh, and thank you also for uh, patience with some uh, growing pains of the new system, uh, the new uh, organization of the server. Um, but uh, I think it went pretty well today. Um, I have to remember to uh, shut down the bot as well. Uh, yeah, I'll see everyone next week.